0: Hello, welcome back to A Matter of Life and Film. I'm Emilia Rolovich and I'm here with
1: Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian.
0: Great, well, thanks for returning. And I guess last time we complained about the Oscars and this time we're going to complain about, I mean, maybe not completely, about the BAFTA nominations. Yeah. The winners are announced, I believe, on Sunday, right, on the 18th.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, I shall of course be complaining. Whinging is my default position. So yes, I mean I probably will be. Although I tend to have less to complain about with BAFTAs than the Oscars. But yeah, I should stay right away. I'm a member of BAFTA. Uh, This surprises people, I think. Uh, They think, what on earth business do you have as journalist parasite on the film business? Actually, being a voting member of BAFTA. And I say, well, you're right. I don't think I've got any excuse whatsoever, other than the fact that I do. Watch all of the films. That's the one thing I can say as a BAFTA member. And not many BAFTA members, even the most dedicated craft people or people in the business, can say what I've said, which is I literally have watched every single one. And I should also say, a while back, uh, I haven't done this for a few years now, but a while back, I was on a jury uh, on the BAFTAs. I was on the most outstanding British debut jury, which was A really, really good experience. I mean, I've done a lot of jury work in my time, but I can definitely say that the jury, the BAFTA jury for Outstanding Debut was extremely conscientious and extremely committed. We all turned up to the BAFTA headquarters, which is this fantastically grand office in Piccadilly in central London, opposite the Royal Academy. And we filed into the Richard Attenborough kind of conference room or whatever it's called. The main cinema in BAFTA is called the Princess Anne cinema. So that'll give you some idea about how grand it is. And we all sat down and we, every week, we really knuckled down to it. And I found it a really good experience. So for what this is worth, and I'm not saying it's worth all that much, the BAFTA voting system, the BAFTA kind of consultation system is extremely committed and extremely conscientious and extremely professional. And although I can't for the life of me remember what actual films we voted on, I've always from that day to this taken a really close interest in that particular category, the outstanding debut category, because I always think that is, in a way, the soul of the BAFTAs. The BAFTA, which really makes a difference to the recipient, which is to say, as a nominee and as a winner, it really makes a difference to you. Whereas people like Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, or Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, or... Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon. That's great, but it's not going to change their lives. Whereas, for example, the most outstanding debut prize, the nominees are Blue Bag Life, Bobi Wine, The People's President, Earth Mama by Savannah Leaf, Is Anybody Out There by Ella Glendinning, and How to Have Sex by Molly Manning-Walker. Now, for all of those people, the fact that they have got a BAFTA nomination means about a thousand times more really than it does for anybody else. So I've often thought that is the real epicenter of the BAFTAs. And I always take a close, close interest in it. And I also, in my conceited and, and big-headed way, I always think that, you know, they've got it wrong if they don't agree with me, and they've got it right if they do agree with me. You know, that's a delusion all journalists have, but once you've served on that jury, you think, right, we wouldn't have screwed it up like that.
0: Yeah, I'm not a member of BAFTA, you know, obviously, but could you explain the voting? Are there juries for every category? Is not it quite a lot of people vote? Like-
1: <laughs> as, as far as I know, there are juries for a number of categories in the first round. Once you've got round to this section, and I think obviously the final votes conclude this week, and then the ceremonies on Sunday night. For the first round, I think that there are a number of different juries. And to be quite honest, and this is where I have to admit that I still haven't penetrated in a Vatican sanctum of BAFTA, as I'm still not sure quite how many juries there are. And for what? I think there are juries for best British film and certainly for outstanding debut and possibly for best film not in the English language. I'm not sure. When it comes down to it, I think in the second round of voting, it is just a vote and you just you just vote.
0: So, in the final vote, which will lead to the winners on Sunday, will that have been loads of people in the industry who are BAFTA members voting? And yes,
1: yeah, okay, yeah. right, yeah. It's open to a general vote, with a possible exception, I think, of the outstanding debut, because I don't think I voted on that this year. So, I think it is that outstanding debut is still kept to a jury. I think because they think that outstanding debut contenders are so obscure and so recherché. Just simply can't rely on the general membership to have mm. seen them or to have made a fair and informed decision. So right, that's what right. that is about. But I mean, <laughs> as with all these things, the Oscars and the Globes and the, and the BAFTAs, there's always a sense of the voting, the cephalogy of it, the democracy of it is not exactly transparent in any case, certainly not with the Oscars or with the BAFTAs. I mean, we don't, it's not like a political election where you get to find out how many votes and how close it was in each case. That is just, kept absolutely secret, and nobody ever questions it. I mean, the Golden Globes, at the very height of their, or rather than very depth of their scandal, produced uh, a nominations list, which was no really any different from the Oscars, in fact, slightly more diverse. So anyway, in awards season, I always come into this season weirdly thinking, it's Groundhog Day, and here we are all over again. What happens is that there is a weird groupthink, which As I say, I'd love to see some data analysts really look into how this works. But there's a huge group thing which decides what is the best film or what is the obvious big contender. And the big contender this year is Oppenheimer. That is, the film really grabbed all the opinion formers' attention, and to some extent, of course, the public, because it's done very well at the box office, and you can't, you can't quarrel with that. You can't say fairer than that. But every year there is this weird groupthink that decides that one film is obviously a more plausible candidate than another. And every year I think, well, there are these other films that I think were really good as well, and you can't really tell anybody about them either way, because the awards juggernaut just rolls over them. And it's very difficult to bring any attention back to them because, of course, you look like a spoil sport. You think, well, this is, you know, in, in the great Super Bowl of award season, these are the films. Um, so it's, you feel like a bit of a nerd and a bit of an idiot. But now the discourse, the mode of rhetoric in which we use to discuss these things has changed entirely. And now we're all about the snubs, which in a way I think is better. It's more critical in that we're not taking these nominations lists at their own estimation of themselves. We are kind of looking at it and saying, well, what has been omitted here? What are the patterns of what we now call erasure? In recent years, that had a political reflex and that people would talk about hashtag Oscars so white. Let's say there was a racist bias in that black people of colour were not being included in these nominations lists. And then, of course, the argument developed and the conversation was all about Me Too. And there was much more about or as much about, women not being included in these lists.
0: On the Oscars website, there's the Representation and Inclusion Standards, which okay. is for the eligibility and the best picture category. I think it was mentioned a few years ago, but now it's in place for 2024. So there's different standards. So you could meet standard A, which is on-screen representation, themes and narrative. So... Where that could be elite right. or significant supporting actors from underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. So, like, I guess Killers of the Flower Moon would be that. Um, okay. And then, yeah. or yeah. general ensemble cast, 30% of actors, so underrepresented groups may include women, racial or ethnic groups. So, I guess there right. are these right. standards. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess they're trying. It's, I mean, I don't a, know if it's, that it's, makes yeah, a difference in how people vote.
1: Yeah. I mean, a efficiently ingenious producer could claim almost any film <laughs> somehow got in there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting. A
0: film can achieve the standard by means of either criteria in at least one of the areas. The One is general ensemble cast, so at least 30% of actors in secondary and minor roles from two underrepresented groups, which can in- include women, LGBTQ+, racial or ethnic group, people with cognitive or physical mm. disabilities, or hard of hearing. So right. does that mean that you people mean right. could not necessarily foreground those themes and sort of just have a load of extras who are women or in a particular racial or ethnic group? I mean, it's good that there are certain standards, but aren't there ways for people yeah. to meet certain categories which are just easier to meet because they're easier to meet and then not really thinking about the actual impact? I mean, I guess it's a whole wormhole you could go down with yeah. all these standards. Yeah, but-
1: I don't have a big kind of woke problem with it. I think it's fine. I think... These kind of strictures on film's eligibility have always existed, either implicitly or explicitly. I don't have a problem with it at all. I mean, I think sometimes with British films, I don't know about you, I've sat down and I watched some British films and I thought there's some box ticking going on. Very admirably intended, very, very justifiably conceived, but nevertheless, it feels like it doesn't organically grow out of the story that they're trying to tell.
0: Should we talk about the yeah. best films? So, okay, is, so I think yeah. with the Oscars, there's 10 potential films for the best film category. But with BAFTA, there's 10 in the Outstanding British Film Award, but then five for just best film overall. So.
1: Sure. Well, for the best film, I have to say, I think almost certainly Oppenheimer is going to win. Big momentum. And I think it is, I think it's a very serious and very substantial and in many ways, brilliant movie. I'm not sure that I think it's the masterpiece that other people think it is. And in my possibly rather woke, guardian-y way, I have to say, I still think that Christopher Nolan's omission of the Japanese experience, particularly the fact that Oppenheimer did in fact visit Japan after the war, it is slightly baffling to me why he did not include that. As I say, he and his wife did visit Japan after the war, and Nolan could have included that. But nevertheless... That was not his approach. His approach was to be talking about a kind of overdog history of what it felt like from the point of view of the kind of Anglo-American allies. And that was his purview. And I get it. I get it. I don't necessarily want to punish him, but I do feel that the film for me lacked a little bit of reality, to be honest with you. Although I love the scene, the brilliant scene, where Oppenheimer comes to the White House and sits on the couch in front of President Harry S. Truman, played by Gary Oldman, and says that he feels guilty and he wants to be forgiven. And President Truman kind of erupts with rage and just says, well, you know, stop whining. You know, we did what we had to do. And do you think the Japanese care? Who dropped the bomb on them? Uh, And I thought that was a great moment. But as I say, I feel that movie has sort of landed on awards season with a great big kind of clump uh, and has slightly stifling the conversation around the other films, to be honest with you. And for me, Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos' amazing steampunk freakout, his retro-futurist Victorian neo-Frankensteinian horror film with Willem Dafoe as the anatomist and, of course, the great Emma Stone as Bella Baxter, this fallen woman who's brought back to life, brought back from the dead, with the brain of her own unborn child, is a brilliant idea and she realises it brilliantly it's an incredible piece of work everybody should see it it's, I think it's Lanthimos' best film
0: well, the world building of it you know if one production design that would be great I think because I heard yeah. a lot about it being a great you know f- feminist film I think I expected more but then can you win with the story of her having a child's brain in her head and this you know infantilization aspect to it and to me it felt more like maybe a sort of simple man's idea of feminism and you know I guess it being written by a man and directed by a man didn't surprise me I just thought it fell a bit flat on that aspect and I didn't really get the sense that it was focused on a complex female story I thought it was like okay she discovers Sex, but also discovers some kind of philosophical awakening because poor people exist. I don't know. I found it a bit too simple, really. I, I didn't find it spoke to me. I didn't really get the essence that it was. I totally um, get that.
1: My only feeling is that I never saw it as a feminist film, particularly. It's not something which is a feminist film. It's a, a horrifyingly transgressive film, which is there to upset almost everything and everyone, and it's, it isn't very feminist. No, you're right. It isn't. I don't think it's anti-feminist, but it, its vision of womanhood yeah. is bizarre and reductive and absurd and arguably, yes, yeah. male. But it has a kind of energy and madness and a kind of consistency which other movies which have been regarded as feminist and I think are feminist, or at least the movie this year that really thinks of itself as feminist, is Barbie. I mean, Barbie, I'm not sure about Barbie. I think there is a fundamental problem in that the movie, everybody concerned with the movie isn't quite sure whether Barbie is a feminist hero or a feminist villain. But it is a film about feminism in a way that I don't think any other movie around has been. Uh, But Poor Things is completely different. It's something which sets out to transgress against almost every kind of nostrum, including them. I mean, it, it it is a film which in its insouciant way is unaware of feminism. Uh, Now, should it be unaware of feminism? Possibly not. But it breaks all the China in the China shop for me in the most kind of amazing way. I didn't have a problem with it. I don't think it's an anti-feminist film. But yes, I would certainly say it is a very male film.
0: I mean, could it win best film? I mean, I think you're right with Oppenheimer. I think the people who really love Oppenheimer are going to just vote for it and they think it's got the gravitas. But then I guess Killers of the Flower Moon, Anatomy of a Mm -hmm. Fool, they have that serious tone as well but they're, you know would people serious, be
1: between holdovers is not serious but of course it's a comedy and that traditionally might be mm. held against it um, and I suspect that it will I suspect that Paul Giamatti very possibly mm. get best actor although much that I love Paul Giamatti I kind of think that Bradley Cooper is slightly better at acting I've decided mm. with Maestro I don't know how we got got onto Maestro Ma- Maestro is a film which definitely was the loser in the implied contest with Oppenheimer. I mean, Oppenheimer versus Bernstein as two giant great men with their tortured genius lives. And there's only room for one film like that, I think, in any award season. And uh, Oppenheimer, of course, delivers the payload of seriousness in a way that poor old Leonard Bernstein can't. I mean, I've been hearing that poor Kerry Mulligan is going around asking people, do people not like our film anymore? Do people not like Maestro? And I don't think that's true. I think people do like it. They just don't like it as much as perhaps they expected to like it or as much as they like other films. But those two performances, I think Bradley Cooper's performance and particularly Carey Mulligan's performance. Carey Mulligan's gives a really subtle and, to use this horrible word, relatable performance. Uh, it's very subtle. I kind of love her performance. But I also love Emma Stone's very different performance. And But Emma Stone is so flashy. And I'm Almost inclined to talk up Kerry Mulligan almost because I rightly or wrongly, I think she's kind of the underdog because she doesn't have this
0: crazy,
1: sexy, kind of provocative gonzo performance that Emma Stone gets. Kerry Mulligan, apart from everything else, she's stuck with playing the wife yet again. She oh my poor thing. No, no pun intended. She always gets to play the wife, the boring wife. But at least she does make it mean something emotionally. So to cut this long story short, yes, I would say Oppenheimer is probably going to win. I would probably myself give it to poor things. But of the films that have been snubbed in this category, there are loads. But I have to just quickly mention the film Godland by Hildenor Palmerson. Now, that's a movie that was mm. a huge hit in Cannes last year. And it is an amazing film, a beautiful A beautiful, beautiful film, Icelandic film set in 19th century Iceland about a a pastor being sent to establish a new church on Iceland's remote um, south coast. It's one of those films that if you've seen it, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. It's one of those European art house, foreign language subtitled movies that has a huge kind of church fan base in a way, a kind of constituency. You know, we are the worshippers in the pews for this amazing film. And other people outside the faith think, what are you going on about this film for? If there was any justice, really, it should be on a BAFTA list. But for one reason, it's... Yeah, I guess best film film.
0: in the English language would make sense. Yeah, (laughs) Probably too, Probably too, too obscure that. for the just
1: yeah. film. Yeah, um, I'm sadly sad to say I think you're right. I mean I think on that list, Celine Song's Past Lives. I mean everybody bangs on about Past Lives, and I'm one of them. This wonderful Korean film about two people reconnecting in later life, reviving their childhood romance in later life, um, and the difficulties involved in doing that. They reconnect through Facebook. In a traditional Hollywood sense, or a traditional Brit sense or even perhaps a French sense, that would be the subject matter, either for a very ironic comedy or possibly a kind of psychological thriller because you really don't know what people are like now that they've grown-ups, but you think you do because you knew them as children. So there's obvious material for a really good comedy or a really good psycho thriller, but Past Lives is not about that at all. It's a deeply serious, thoughtful, bittersweet drama which is rather amazing again that's another one which has its own church it has its own following Uh, the church is rather larger in this case
0: in terms of best actor in a leading role i guess a surprise was that all of us strangers andrew scott he wasn't included in best actor in a leading role yeah that's Um, another
1: i'm really
0: surprised
1: i was very surprised i love andrew scott he's a brilliant actor He's a very really interesting guy. If this isn't too naff of me, I love his interview game as well, outside of the work. Whenever he talks about things, he's always got something interesting to say about LGBT representation, about the nature of theatre and how it's overpriced and about acting generally. He's a really interesting kind of a public figure in the Anglophone world. And I think he's great. I am eccentric enough Also to say that I would have liked to see Joachim Phoenix be nominated for his performance as Napoleon. Now, every year, every critic critic has a lost cause. uh, And my lost cause is Napoleon. I still really like it. Everybody hates it, but I like it. Well, they don't hate it, but they think that it's really not all that great. Um, And I think it's more or less true to say that's what most people think. But I thought Joachim Phoenix was at least as good as he was in The Joker. And, and I think loads better. So, well, I mustn't go on and on and on in my whinging and ill-natured way about how everybody has failed to understand my genius in appreciating Ridley Scott's genius or Joachim Phoenix's genius. I think it's really good. And I would have loved to have seen him being nominated. But no, I mean, obviously, Andrew Scott is great. All of Us Strangers is a wonderful movie terrific film. It's really thoughtful and bittersweet. It reminds me of The Child in Time by Ian McEwan. Mm. That type of fantasy which is presented in a realist way and asks you to take it seriously on a realist basis. But it doesn't behave as if it's sentimental fantasy. It behaves as if it is pretty tough social realism. So I loved that film, and I agree. Andrew Scott really should have been nominated. Of the actual list, I think Paul Giamatti will probably win. I think he gives a terrific, although possibly slightly familiar, performance as the grumpy teacher in the holdovers. I've seen on social media people saying that they love the holdovers, but they don't quite believe it, and I understand that. I'm not sure that I totally believe it myself, but I adored it. I found it slipped down like a fine wine. And it is, it's is—it's funny and smart and approachable in a way that many dramas aren't approachable. They're smart, but they're not approachable, or they're too approachable, or they're dumbed down, whereas this is not like that at all. Of the other ones, I love Bradley Cooper. I think Bradley Cooper's impersonation of Leonard Bernstein is sort of brilliant. It's a very... Egotistical performance, arguably, because he's directing it as well and he awards himself so many close ups and so many different stages of Bernstein's life. Who do you like for Best Actress?
0: You did talk about Carrie Mulligan in Maestro, and I think she, you know, matched Bradley Cooper's over the, well, not that she was over the top. I think with his over the top performance as Leonard Burstein as kind of ego maniac, I thought Carrie Mulligan brought a lot of heart to the film, and I think she's a really central in Maestro. So I think if Carrie Mulligan won, that would be great. But then Margot Robbie as Barbie, I mean, that would be amazing. That great but stuff. great she's comedy good.
1: performance, there's no doubt about it. And I loved Sandra Bullock. Yeah, Sandra Bullock I mean, you know. is an amazing, almost. She's the one with two separate BAFTA nominations. Rather amazingly she's the lead mm. in Anatomy of a Fall and is up for best supporting actress for her performance as Frau Helga Hurs in the terrifying yeah. Zone of Interest to do two separate performances and to be really bringing her A game this rather amazing mm-hmm very European actor, of course. She always has that rather stringent, shrewd sense of being very sceptical about everything around her. That's part of what I love about Sandra Hula. I actually met her recently. I interviewed her on stage. and She was very interesting. I asked her what she thought of the zone of interest. Obviously, we got onto the zone of interest. I asked her what she thought of the Martin Amos novel, and she had no interest in it whatsoever. She said that she saw some reviews, they weren't very good reviews, and she has no interest in Martin Amos. It's very interesting how that source material is is completely irrelevant, really, to the, the movie. I would be prepared to guess that very few people involved in the movie really read the book. They understood Jonathan Glazier's procedure, which was to take the basic premise and just use that mm-hmm. as a platform for a complete rethink. But what I also think is interesting about that movie, incidentally, is consciously or not, that project brought with it the residue of Martin Amos's tone, which is of icy black irony, the very intent, bleak irony, and a very English irony itself. I mean, obviously, Jonathan Glazer is an Englishman, and so is Martin Amos. And so they brought that horrifying, satanic black comedy that you'd never get from any other film. You wouldn't expect to see it in any other European version of the same story or approach to the same subject. But you do get it, in a way, indirectly from from Martin Amis. That's my theory about that.
0: Speaking of the whole kind of icy theme, Best Supporting Actress, um, quite it's pleasingly, actress, Rosamund yes. Pike is nominated, which is great. It was a really fun yeah. performance.
1: Yeah, I think... It's interesting how Sogman had made all the running in terms of the conversation, um, which I think is great. I mean, it got people really talking and disagreeing Mm. about films, which I think is amazing. Rosamund Pike is easily the best thing in it. She's the one person who inhabits her character most pleasingly and most completely and in such a way that the audience doesn't feel like they're being taken for a bit of a ride. I mean, of course, there is an element of the twist ending in Saltburn, so obviously they're supposed to be taken for a ride a bit. But I think in this film, a lot of audiences felt they'd been trifled with a bit and the basis on which they are bought into the film had sort of shifted a bit halfway through the film and they felt that they didn't like it. But Rosamund Pike is brilliant in it. I wish the film had been half an hour shorter and more about her, th- than more about Jacob Elordi's character, mm. who I thought was much less interesting than Rosamund Pike, because Rosamund Pike can be so brilliantly evil sometimes. Mm. But undoubtedly, I think, and right or wrongly, I would be prepared to bet that she would lose out to Divine Joy Randolph for her performance in The Holdovers, it's the cook who's in The Holdovers whose son was also a student at the same posh school, and she appears to have got him in there with no fees because of her job there. And he is the one who has given his life in Vietnam in a way that all these white boys are apparently able to get out of doing, using education to get out of military service. She carries on being the cook in her grief. And it's a terrific performance.
0: Yeah, no, she was great. If she won Best Supporting Actress, I think that would be well deserved. She had a lot of warmth in her role, but also you um, see these different sides yeah, to her.
1: I think I know what you mean. It created the space for you to engage with her other existence, her family existence at home with her sister and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah. So, Saltburn is in the Outstanding British Film category, which as we mentioned, has 10 films. Yeah. I think if we go through them and say yes or no, could it win? Yeah. All of us strangers, I think yes, that could win and maybe should that win. That could
1: win. Yeah, that um, totally could win. All, uh, uh, yeah. all of strangers could totally win. How to Have Sex, that's a more of an outsider. I think that's going to win the best Outstanding Debut, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I was going to say Outstanding Debut, and I think that's... Yeah, I think that's where
1: it's going to happen. That's where it's going to happen. It's a terrific movie, and I think she's great. I think Molly Manning Walker is absolutely great. But I don't see it winning. Outstanding British film. But I don't see it winning. The next one, Napoleon, of course. Sadly, no.
0: I mean... (laughs) That's that's my lost cause. Yeah, I mean, your answer would be in your ideal world, yeah.
1: The Old Oak could get something. I mean, Ken Loach has a real constituency in BAFTA where people have seen it. They've really liked it. When you get people to see it, they respond to it. And... I wouldn't totally rule it out, to be, fun, to be fair with you. I think it's an outsider, but I wouldn't totally rule it out. Poor Things, that would be almost unfair for poor Things to win the outstanding British film as well as possibly the British film, but it could do. It could do. Going down yeah. this list, um, Rye Lane. I've got to admit, everybody loves Rye Lane. They think it's the greatest rom-com since the glory days of Richard Curtis. I've got to say, I found it a little bit limp. I hate to say it because everybody loves it, but I found it a bit like kids' TV. A lot of British movies, when they try to be funny or try to be hyperactive or high energy, they tend up looking like kids' TV. And I have to admit that Rye Lane, for me, did tend to look a bit like that. People have been responding really emotionally. They found a real emotional connection to Rye Lane. So I wouldn't dream of patronizing it and saying it's got no chance
0: too many wide-angle yeah. lenses for me and kind of crazy cinematography that really took me out of the whatever heartfeltness the story was supposed to have right. um but yeah i mean it, yeah. it could would it over all of us strangers or something i mean i'm not sure Saltburn, that i mean that would be fun Salt but i think again? it's probably too divisive yeah. Too many people hate it's, it maybe it's for it's actually fun, but, yeah.
1: it. i mean in terms of critical terms i think it's great but in terms of Democracy and voting—it's split its own vote, I'm afraid, and I don't see it winning. Really. Just on that basis, that it's so yeah. genuinely is divisive in a way that no other film on this list is divisive in the same way.
0: Scrapper, I haven't seen that yeah. actually. Do you think it's yeah. much
1: good? Scrapper is a nice social realist British film with a big heart. I think it's a little bit so it won't win then. Been there, done that. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, it's a bit been there, done that. I have to say, it's a classic sweet and sour. You've got the older guy, Harris Dickinson, and the young kid. I felt that when Charlotte Wells did it in After Son, there was a much deeper and more interesting connection in a, in a father-daughter relationship. I felt this was a little bit pat. It has a real connection with people, so who knows? But for me, it really oh, wasn't sweet. for me. I don't see it as a big standout. Um, no, Wonka? No. Yeah. Wonka is brilliant. Again, in my whinging way, I'm a little bit shocked, in a way, by how people seem to think, oh, it can't be eligible for awards because it's just so silly. I thought it was terrifically good as a family film, an old-fashioned sort of Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks family film. If we're allowed to praise something as uncool as that, it is brilliant. And Timothy Chalamet has never been better. He is brilliant in it, absolutely great. I'm not a huge Roald Dahl children's sort of fairy tale guy. I'm not a huge fan, if I'm quite honest, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, I remember Gene Wilder, and he was great. But I wouldn't say that I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. I remember enjoying Timothy Chalamet's performance as the young Willy Wonka a lot more. Although, Mm. as I pointed out in my review, and many people pointed out the same thing, Rather bafflingly, this film, which apparently is an origin myth for Willy Wonka, doesn't really go anywhere close to showing you quite how Willy Wonka became the dark and rather complex figure that he actually is in Roald Dahl's story with a rather dark, anti-children, rather sadistic edge. And that is not shown in this film at all. Timothy Chalamet is great. Hugh Grant is hilarious. I'd love to see it do very well, but maybe BAFTA should have its equivalent of the oscars kind of the box office prize for the industry achievement because i think wonka would would do that
0: i went into wonka quite skeptical because i really like the gene wilder version but i was pleasantly surprised the only thing is the songs were just i mean i can't name a song from the recent wonka film they were just sort of a bit one note but you know the the original one they're so yeah yeah, in the original one they're so stand out and you just remember them i mean that's one small thing but i thought does this have to be a musical you know i think it could easily have just not been but then maybe they thought it would just be more dynamic mm. and you know the gene wilder one had songs so it's been nominated so who knows i think the zone of interest, the zone could, of win. interest
1: could easily do it the zone of interest did very well at the london critics awards yeah. people are really talking about that film it has shocked people and stunned people to their absolute core especially people who would never watch a film about the Holocaust. I mean, the films about the Holocaust tend to be very long, a very forbidding film. And of course, this is forbidding as well. But interestingly, this is part of the reason why I'm a little bit agnostic about The Zone of Interest, because there's something, I think, a little bit slick and stylish about it, which makes me a bit uneasy. Brilliant, though, undoubtedly, it is. And of course, Jonathan Glazer is a very serious and brilliant filmmaker. I think I prefer the film Son of Saul by Laszlo Nemes as a film which is not quite so concerned to foreground its stylistic brilliance in quite the same way. But brilliant is undoubtedly what it is. And the cinematography is so disturbing because it, apart from everything else, it sounds so simple to say this, but Wukash zar the cinematographer on The Zone of Interest, creates this amazing hallucinatory blue sky. Of course, it's the way he's shooting. it. Now, you don't associate Auschwitz and the death camps with a beautiful summer's day. But part of the subversion of the film is that's mm. what you get in the zone of intro. And it is deeply transgressive and unnerving. I suppose you could almost call it Bunuelian, the idea that you're just going to make a film about the home life of the Auschwitz camp commandant, his wife and his servants and his colleagues. And behind their backs, the horror is happening. You don't see what's happening in the camp, but you see their cutesy, twee little middle class German life. It's a simple idea, but it would—I can't imagine anybody else bringing it off with quite so forthright away way as, as Glazer.
0: I loved all the sort of hidden camera stuff. I mean, I don't know if they were hidden, but yeah. you sort of felt like you were hiding in the house, looking into this grim exactly. reality of this family exactly. living. Yes. Another film that really shook me. I mean, it's in Best Documentary and Best Film, not on the English language, 20 Days in Mariupol. I mean, yeah, do documentaries right. normally um, make it over to the other categories or is that quite a big thing?
1: That, that is a wonderful film. The director, Midislav Chernov was originally making, shooting all that material just for the regular TV news. And he was going out and shooting it for, as I understand it, for BBC or CNN or whatever, And this was just material he just couldn't use, material that would never get used on the TV news because it's so shocking and so explicit. And so he was able to create this amazing eyewitness account, really immersive. There's another word which we use all the time, but this really is immersive. And it's a very interesting film. It asks questions of the relationship between the people shooting the images and the people being captured. I mean, some of the people who saw him and his camera people They said, you know, go away, we don't want you here. But some of the people said, yeah, come and, you know, record this. And it's very interesting, the split between the two people.
0: Yeah, I think it's one thing, reading about what's happening in Ukraine on the news, but actually watching that documentary and seeing how it develops and how things just get worse and worse with the 20 days he films just back-to-back. Like, you know, it's really haunting and just... Wow. I mean, that is the best documentary. I think it's probably quite a clear win. But then, you know, um, Beyond Utopia, which wasn't nominated for the Oscars, but is in the BAFTA best documentary category. I mean, that's about North Korea and it's got all this yeah. hidden footage of this family escaping and the lengths people go through yeah. to escape North Korea. And that's really worth seeing as well. Those are really heavy kind of like, oh, my God watchers. But then there's the Michael J. Fox movie, which is really great about his struggle with Parkinson's, but um I think after you watch Twenty Days in Maripol or Beyond Utopia, which are such heavy, hard hitting documentaries, you sort of feel like, you know, perhaps one of those probably twenty days.
1: It's unfair (laughs) it's unfair. It makes they make everybody else look like silly lightweights gibbering on about you know, movies or what have you, and that Twenty Days in Mariupol and Beyond Utopia are serious movies. And I'm always very suspicious of that. I always sort of find myself rooting for the kind of the you know the lightweight underdog in these cases. But no, I mean of of those cases, I mean yeah. I I quite like still the Michael J. Fox film, although you know they kept using clips of actual Michael J. Fox films as if as if it was really happening in his life. And I felt, although I I kind of understood the joke obviously. I felt that it wasn't particularly insightful, it didn't really cast that much light on it. I'd rather have had continuous interview material with, with Fox himself, who's such a great interviewee and so smart and funny and uh, such a survivor. He's, he's great. And of the other ones, Wham! Okay. I mean, is all I... right, but they use a lot of old stuff in Wham! A lot of old, you know, all, all the interview stuff is because... George Michael is dead and Andrew Richard is not. There's this weird thing that they use old interview audio material of him answering questions, and they juxtapose that with the real-life, live-and-kicking Andrew Ridgeley. And I felt that was a bit weird, to be frank, although it was obviously great to be reminded of the glory days of a wow. All
0: right, well, I think that's all we have time for. I mean, there's obviously lots more we could talk about, but in the interest of time and getting this out before the actual after ceremony on Sunday, Um, I think we'll say goodbye. So thanks, Peter, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah. And see you all or whatever. We'll be back next time. Okay.